Welcome to Season 2 of the Revenue Marketing Report powered by CaliberMind. Our goal in the RMR is to help marketers move from subject matter experts to strategic business partners. I'm your host, Kamala Thompson, and today I'm thrilled to introduce Sasha Samoyla. Sasha, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks for having me. So to start kind of at the beginning, you have to get context of where I'm at kind of now. Over kind of the journey of nine, almost going on 10 years of ops and kind of analytics experience, I have been very intentional about getting myself very closer and closer to this type of profession, which has been very exciting for me because I really enjoy working with data and working with systems. And I've always found a knack of like tinkering. Mm -hmm. And so I actually started my career in the traditional kind of PR space, thinking about branding for doing energy companies. I was working on the agency side. And I very quickly realized that although I could write copy and it was entertaining for me or it was professionally you know, exciting, what I really enjoyed most was really the, the data side, working with our systems and integrations. And so really that kind of spearheaded me onto this journey where I was quite surprised that I wouldn't be in traditional like branding or advertising space. And it this kind of journey took me into different industries from you know, B2B marketing or like SaaS marketing in the manufacturing space to now primarily doing a lot of that startup grind that a lot of folks are, I'm sure are used to knowing and uh, kind of loving. So that's a little bit about myself of going through this journey of the traditional four P's of marketing to dealing with, you know, the velocity of data and the volume of data, trying to understand how those two things wrangle in uh, unison. Awesome. So that's perfect for our topic today, which is data myth busting 101. And when we were discussing topics, we both bonded over the fact that uh, a lot of times it feels like data kind of goes places and gets a little bit out of control and you have to rein it in. People work with different definitions and it can Mm -hmm. get a little messy. So we also talked about how we've been talking about data-driven marketing and B2B for at least 10 years, Mm -hmm. probably longer than that. But it's not really what we see adoption-wise. Like I I wouldn't say 100% of marketers are data-driven decision makers by any stretch of the means. Oh, yeah. No. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think is getting in the way of people really going all in? Yeah, I think it comes down to a a few movements, right? It comes traditionally kind of from the top of what is the cultural, what is the setting, audience setting from the executive suite, from your CEO, from your board of directors. These are the folks that are typically the ones that allocate budget and headcount to maintaining a lot of these data projects. These data projects, unless you see the value of them, they're not always the sexiest thing that moves the business forward. So starting there at a foundational question of why, why not be more data-driven when you can move your business faster starts from a place of, well, do you understand how data can move your business forward? Mm-hmm. And then two, let's say another big trend of it is the complexity of data that we are now dealing with, the volume, variety, and the frequency of this data is now gone exponentially, uh, it's grown at an exponential rate. And you know, week a week, Week over week, month over month, we see this data continue to grow. And wrangling that and understanding that even if we're just talking about first-party data, right? We're talking about some of the latest companies going after product-led growth, 
you know, what does that mean in practical terms? That means that you have likely a data warehouse stood up. Your first early hires or your engineering hires are probably spending a lot of resources standing up that infrastructure to support a data warehouse, to support product analytics in near real time. And that level of complexity takes a lot of forethought and a lot of initial investment that can generally increase the cost of starting a new business. Mm-hmm. Right? Before, if you think back, oh gosh, now a decade, you know, before you could, you know, send out some flyers and maybe perhaps do some email marketing. Those were kind of the earlier days. Mm-hmm. And now you're in this world where you're not playing by the same ground rules if you don't have a data warehouse, if you don't have your product connected, if you're not ingesting, let's say, web activity from your first party uh, website. So all these kind of movements really create a friction point between marketers and operations folks in general really trying to use and wrangle their data and just the, the, sheer, the sheer question of where do I start? And I think that's where a lot of folks get caught up in where, you know, we, you know, I've had the privilege of joining some earlier stage companies where the, you know, there's evergreen space everywhere. And I had the opportunity to build things, you know, talking to my peers and building things correctly from the get go. But that's not always the case. Most of us start into tech stacks that are already built for us with some tech that naturally built into the process. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of that is really hard to either unwind or fix you're always trying to go after the next thing. You're always trying to move forward. But there seems to be this, you know, this skeleton in the closet, if you will, of data that's piling up that could be used, but isn't being tracked properly or isn't being wrapped in the right story for folks to really pay attention to better or care about it. Yeah. A few other things I see, I think not everybody has the same aptitude for pattern matching and and spotting trends. So, and that's fine. Like we need people of all different mindsets and backgrounds to really run a a robust program. But oftentimes what gets in the way of hiring for those resources is the inability to build a business case and you need those resources to build the business case. So it's like, it's like a snake eating its own tail. Exactly. It's this chicken or egg situation where it feels like, I feel like a lot of operators are tied at the hip. Right, where you have one arm behind your back, where you don't have the team resources to even get up, like for air, to say, "Hey, I'm I'm just trying to keep the business afloat." Mm-hmm. Right, more or less create a business case that's pithy and impactful, that targets the right audience. Right, you're you're usually talking to a VP, or you're talking to your CMO or your CRO. These are the end usually consumers of this deck, and a lot of the operations folks, a lot of these folks that are preparing this data really wanted to get into the, uh, the nitty-gritty details. Like I know for me personally, it took a long time for me to distill ideas down into just one or two things. Ditto. <laughs> it's, it's hard. It's hard yeah. because, because I, through a lot of my professional, like my early professional career, a lot of, at least through the American education system, have been taught that I always have to show my work. I always have to justify my thought process, my experiences, the data that I'm seeing. And I felt like that translated when I got into the real world, I felt that translated into 60 60 long slide decks of like, okay, here's the methodology I used. Here's here's the data assumptions. Almost nobody cares about that. There's, There's a small select few that I folks that I work with in the operations space who really, really nerd out about that, but it's Mm -hmm. a small group. 
Yeah. I think that's where it starts is that, that general understanding that if I am a, a leader, if I am your boss, or if I'm somebody who has to deal with many millions of things, just like we all do, the last thing I need to think about is like, what model did you use on a particular thing? What, mm-hmm. what data, what, what should I be thinking about from a data quality perspective, right? There has to be this back and forth between understanding, you know, I like to call it a, like this, the, the data CMO, right? Like I talked about my background from like, the PR side. For many years of my career, I've seen the brand CMO, the brand CMO who comes in and says, here is how the outward facing image of the company should look like. And now you have this new age of the data CMO or the data executive leader for that matter, who's starting to really understand how all these things play in, into a bigger picture, how you can influence go-to-market strategy. Like this is, you know, working with a lot of PLG customers, this is a lot of what they've realized is really important. What if I take first party data and see how I can adapt my product, my go-to-market process and everything in between to really make that engine kind of hum really well? Well, great, that means that you have to have, gosh, now an analyst cleaning the data, a data science team modeling the data. Those are expensive resources that take time both time and kind of financial investments that not all companies are ready to quite make. And those companies on the path to transition where they might be thinking about things from a very rudimentary standpoint and haven't quite yet up-leveled to a very sophisticated standpoint, whatever that means for them, that journey seems treacherous. And it seems like a chasm that we need to, we always talk about this chasm of you know, product launches and early adopters, but we don't talk enough about the data chasm of, I'm a system of, you know, I, I might be a large company with large resources. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'll use as a, as a general example with no specifics, let's say like an IBM or an Intel. I might have a lot of resources at my hand, but it's so complicated between product lines and between regional segments, which team owns this. I have one engineering team here, another engineering team here. My go-to-market teams are somewhat talking to each other, but not really. You start to see how quickly it snowballs out of control to a place where you know, I, I, come, I always come back to this question of where do you start? And I think for me, it's really around, you have to start at the core of the culture. You have to have this muscle that you build mm-hmm. with your executive team that says like, let's have a back and forth. Like, what is your constraints that you're dealing with? Right, because we know that CMOs have shorter and shorter tenures these days, unfortunately. And I think it's because it's due to, there's no more flashy slides, the, the glamour and glitz of the advertising, the Mad Men age. It's kind of gone. Not to say that there isn't really cool things marketers are doing now. Yeah. But it's to say that we can no longer just simply rely on brand recognition or traditional principles to drive us forward. We have to start really understanding what, why I should standardize my data. Why industry, as an example, in five different places, mm. the really bad thing to have mm-hmm. when... You know, when you've spent all this time on sales enablement, you've spent all this time on, you know, packaging your product for, let's say, the difference between financial services and, let's say, insurance companies. Imagine if your your team gets it wrong, right? They yeah, go on a yeah. message. It just doesn't land. Yeah. Yeah. You can't segment your data. You're in trouble. So I secret and a bunch of creatives are just going to start screaming at me <laughs> during this podcast, but I have to wonder out loud do you think we'll see more ops people moving up into CMO type roles if they can stretch 
I feel like you kind of have to stretch your creative muscle a bit and prove you can do that as well. You know, I think it's already happening. I think that there's this trend where every single day I'm hearing more and more things that ops has to own. Data mm-hmm. privacy typically used to be held exclusively legal. Now I have to, as an ops person, I have to understand GDPR. I have to understand all the regional side segments of law. I still to, feel like legal should weigh in there and really own that. But legal should definitely like, should own. They it. don't I'm like saying, owning anything though, because liability. Of course, <laughs> but legal should still own and direct the vision of it. Yeah, but I need to be responsible of how my data is used. Oh, yeah. is now coming to ops folks and asking, like, how are we complying with these types of deletion requests? That's fair. Right? I think that's fair. I think marketing operations needs to acknowledge and accept that they own the data strategy. Yeah. Because yeah. everything I, you do impacts everything downstream. Downstream. Exactly. And I think naturally, because ops has been forced to stretch itself, especially if we talk about marketing operations in the space of other operations roles, for some reason that creative label of marketing has allowed us to basically put anything under the sun under marketing operations, right? For some reason, it seems that sales ops and other types of ops functions are very well defined, right? They have a very well generally, more so, I would argue, more so than marketing ops. I don't know about customer success ops. That's I think fair. that one's a little newer, like the newer that's ops true. functions and then revenue operations. Ooh, that's just a wild card right now. Like people well, are still figuring that out. It's the same the strategy of like, we take this thing that we know, we understand revenue management, we understand marketing, we understand sales process. And somehow when we smash it together with operations, it creates this mirage that we're, we no one can understand for some reason just don't forget customer success i i we could talk about this for hours, for hours. we should probably not dig into this one <laughs> but otherwise, i think to answer your question to get back to it i think yes i think naturally it's a really great pathway for an operations person to stretch themselves really adapt their soft skills to then be able to be a leader who understands who can basically go up and down the chain mm-hmm. who can you know, look at a slide, and this is scary. I've seen this a few times with a few of you know the customers I interact with and a few communities I'm part of. It is scary how precise, like how spear, like talk about spearfishing, how precise a, a leader can be when they can go all the way down to the minutia of like pointing out one decimal point that's wrong on your slide. Mm-hmm. It's a scary thing because it is, it is powerful how you understand how that like one number translates to, oh, I'm going to have a bad quarter and two quarters from now because I understand cohorting, right? Mm -hmm. Understanding that power is just phenomenal. I think we'll see more and more folks start to like leverage that and start to realize that to create those great business cases, to do that translation between what the business needs and what the data says is a natural fast track to, to that leadership area, to that leadership kind of or component, whether you call it a CMO or, you know, a chief data officer, I don't know, right? I don't know what that role is going to be because it feels that as we kind of start to touch on CS ops, revenue ops, marketing ops has its own flavor of covering too much. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like that simply saying that it's just going to be a CRO or traditional CMO feels like it really, the industry, we need to, as an industry, we need to redefine what that role is because right now, currently I have, just such a different association from like a 
data data-driven CMO as opposed to just like a CMO and it's like solidarity. It's strange to think about. I talk about how we should have a, a, a data a chief data officer, mm-hmm. but it almost feels like we don't, I don't, I mean, there is that terminology, but it doesn't feel like it has any weight behind it. Yeah. Well, and it depends on where they're focused because if you have a product that's really data centric, then none of your departments are, the cobbler's children has mm-hmm. no shoes. So yeah, it's complicated. We realize that. But I mean, I'm just waiting for the day that people realize when your data and systems aren't in shape and you're not passing your leads along effectively, it doesn't matter how pretty and witty and you know, fill in the blank your creative is, it doesn't, it's it's just like screaming into the void. So get your systems in shape, dang it. Yeah. <laughs> so I think we were both reflecting on some of the data myths, myth blowouts we've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I've seen some pretty intense ones where two departments just go at it in a, a board meeting over data points because they've had their teams go do some independent research and mm-hmm. then they're conflicting. You and I kind of thought it came down to one thing, but if you could share with us why you think that happens and as like a tack onto that, do you think that it happening in the boardroom is kind of a culture specific thing? Should it be happening elsewhere? How can we kind of help mitigate those situations? Oh yeah, I mean, it, it's it's kind of two parts. So I'll answer, oh, just because I feel so strongly about both sides, but I'll answer the latter question first. Should it happen at the boardroom? Of course not, right? Regardless of whether you want to call it optics or politics or whether the data is actually potentially even wrong, which I'll argue for the second point is actually not usually the case. Yeah. But at that level, to me, it's always been that at the board level, at the highest boss's boss, if you will, if you think about it that way, you're just telling, you're there to tell a story of what's happened did it objectively work? Did it objectively not work? And what are we going to do to either double down or fix it, right? Because at the end of the day, really what the relationship typically between a board and your executive suite is that a lot of people don't understand is that there's an advisory component, but there's how does a business run? How do we keep the lights on? And how do we obviously keep growing? And then how do we, you know, give back to the environment, if that's one of your mission goals, how do we give back to stakeholders potentially? There's a lot of things floating around, but it comes down to how does the business continue to operate and grow and innovate, right? That's really what we're talking about here. At that level, it shouldn't be a discussion of, oh, my team came up with this answer and your team came up with another answer. And so that means everything must be thrown out, right? And that's, that's what I don't like about that because at that level of a conversation, if you haven't gotten your ducks in a row, you really shouldn't be going to the board to present. That to me feels like a half-finished product that you were just presenting to somebody who, quite frankly, as I mentioned, this kind of scary ability to point out things. If you have a good partnership with your board, they are going to be the first people who are going to say, that slide doesn't make sense. The five slides you presented on, one of the five slides doesn't make sense. I feel now nervous about investing more, you know, giving you more advice, right? It's very quick how credibility can just wash away. And so now to your first question is, where does it usually come down to, right? So you have these two frictions, these two teams kind of go into the metaphorical boxing ring. What does it come down to? Honestly, for me, what I've seen is it honestly comes down to usually a date filter. It's usually something benign. It's never, 
it's never like the movies. It's never like a, a spy. Like I, I'm very much into spy movies. It's never like a something, you know, Dr. Evil style of, hey, this is a ploy to, to make my numbers cook and look better, right? Have, have I seen and noticed some of this toxic behavior about number cooking? For sure. It does oh, happen. Oh, yeah, me too. Yeah, it does happen. <laughs> it does happen, but I think that... It's rare. A lot of, it's very rare. Thank I goodness. Think with, because now there's more transparency. There's just there's more data available, so it's harder to hide behind it. And now the, the new tactic in the book, if you will, is to say, ah, well, our, I'm doing off of this filter, you're using off of that filter. The analysis that we've done is completely thrown out because we're off by, I don't know, 10 or, or you know, 100 in, in the scope of thousands or tens of thousands of something, whether it's leads or revenue, right? Mm-hmm. The expectations that we are going to balance out from a financial accounting perspective yes. just doesn't make sense to me. Thank it doesn't you. make sense that when I look at a slide, if the insight is the same, it's still the, the magnitude of the insight, like how big of a problem or how much we should double down, like how much is this working, is the same. Why are we talking about your number in a CRM like Salesforce versus my number out of a you know SQL database, for example? Why does mm-hmm. it matter? Right? People get so fixated on that like little tiny detail mm-hmm. where I understand that like we should try to achieve perfection. We should try to get good data quality practices. But I hear this more and more now in a lot of circles, like good shouldn't be the enemy or like perfect shouldn't be the enemy of good. Yes. Yeah. Especially with marketing analytics and marketing data, like it's a weird thing for me to say. (laughs) However, it's not ever going to be like your balance sheet So I've worked with some CEOs from a finance accounting background, and we get fixated on, well, your number of MQLs that you reported last quarter actually changed a little bit. Let's dig into that and see why. And I'm like, well, there's merging records there. (laughs) Like, it's never going to be down to the penny. For it to be stable, in most cases, or at least most cases that I've seen, because the data and tracking is not at the level that it really should be, it's not that it's not hard to track. It just hasn't been done before. I have to snapshot in the form of slideware. Yeah, because I mean, there can be legitimate reasons for variation, like record merging. Exactly. You know, if you're literally off by two or three and you're looking at a quantity of hundreds, you're fine. Yeah. Again, it's like, I can understand if it's a large factor. So mm-hmm. all those folks that are, again, data mindset, we've talked about being data-driven. I understand the, the factor of like, you know, if it's off by, I don't know, double digits, high double digits, we should investigate because that likely means that the overall story could drastically change. I could go from sure. a double down to maybe we keep it stable, right, yep. from a budgetary or, you know, investment perspective. But that's not to say that, again, there is, most of the time, it's going to be legitimate reasoning. And some of the time it comes down to like, you know, we chose, you know, the 30th versus the 31st in a technicality. And there just happens to be like two more people that came in real quick on the 31st than the year on the 30th. Yeah, okay, my, great. My, mm-hmm. my two favorite words are directionally accurate. Yes. <laughs> but I've noticed that uh, quite a few marketing leaders in my past have lost credibility because of these small variations. And 
the original expectation they set that everything was set in stone. These are 100% accurate. This is how can we better equip our marketing leaders to have more healthy conversations around the data so they're not finding themselves in that situation? I mean, I think it comes down to a general understanding of like where some of the limits are. And I'm not saying that all executives should be down in the weeds, whether it's Salesforce reporting, whether it's a BI tool like, you know, uh, Looker or Tableau. I'm not saying that they necessarily need to go down to the very level and spot check records like an analyst or an ops person might do. But I still think that there should be a culture around kind of flexibility and kind of forgiveness in that respect, right? Of understanding of like where we're at today and why some of these variations occur, right? Basically having ammo to back up some of these variations to say, hey, if you want this type of report, know that it's going to diff- be different than what you show in slide five because of these three factors, right? It might exactly. be timing, audience, you know, what is your type of end goal, right? Then goal of, right, we always come back to, is marketing working? That's this nebulous question we ask ourselves very much at the top, right? At the top of the strategy pyramid, we ask ourselves, is a department, is a function working? Well, I can tell you when you bring that question down to the person who's actually doing that, unless they're experienced to ask you why and dig deeper into what you're actually trying to show, you might not get the correct answer, or you might get an answer that's only for this fiscal quarter, or oh, only for this must, right? Because it's it's so hard to we as you know as folks in the data realm, as folks in the operation space, we're supposed to do that translation up. Yes. But I think for a lot of our leaders, like it should also be a translation down. Yes. Like, be curious about why there is this variation. It's okay to have that collaborative conversation, but we need to have it be a conversation of like. As a leader, I need to at least have some cursory understanding why numbers can change. What I'm asking for when I say, let's just email all customers. Wow, that's, that's not that's an easy a task. Bad idea. <laughs> well, first of all, it's a bad idea. But second of all, that I have never known from a financial, like how the finance team versus how a marketing team versus how a CS team defies customers. Yeah, being able to directly communicate them through a channel like email I have never been able to understand of like, well, what if we have multiple users at an account? Mm -hmm. We consider all of them to be our customer. What if we have never talked to them? What if they're not opted in? Well, okay, that's a clear answer. Yeah, and if you're new, you don't know to ask those questions. And it's hard. It's hard because there's so much context that has to be given. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think it comes down to those brand CMOs just don't know how to also translate it down. They don't know what they need to ask for. They don't know what they, they kind of don't know what they don't know. And they don't have the, the time or the priority put behind it to get, to get some education or get some you know, learning from those ops folks and those data folks that are actually in the weeds, right? Mm-hmm. Like because of the nature of how things quickly move, I know in the ops space, I have to constantly asking the people every day, every week, see what is coming up, what is new, what is this, whether it's a vendor, whether it's a technology, right? Is Web3 a thing? Yes or no? Like, who understands that? But like, there's a very fine timeline if you're, as an early adopter, like, you know, moving into that kind of like early majority, you want to make sure that you're on things that are stable 
but things that also like improve your numbers. Because there's always this notion of the, the thought leadership, as, as some folks have called it in the space, is always like several, sometimes several months, maybe even years behind of what you're doing today. Yeah. Right? Because until you get results, it's hard to be like, ah, look at this amazing thing I've done. No one really talks about their failures. So at best you're getting is a stale curated thing of a listicle of like top 10 best things to do five years ago. Mm -hmm. If you haven't done it, well, that's kind of sucks to suck, I guess. <laughs> oh yeah. No, I, I need to start a new segment called the soapbox because <laughs> all these things are popping into my head. Like if the leadership team doesn't understand how useful data can be and how necessary it is, you may be stuck doing all of this in Excel. Mm -hmm. And you won't have the time when you're preparing your quarterly deck to anticipate all of the questions that your leader is going to be asked. You're just spending all of your time crunching numbers. So leaders listening out there, if you want to be better equipped to have the tough conversations or maybe even the good conversations, Equip your team with the tools that are necessary to do their jobs quickly so they have the lead time to go through and prepare you for the potential bombs to step on or other things. Because I remember a lot of times, you know, when I had a financial background CEO, mm -hmm. he'd say, you know, I could do everything in Excel. That's what you're getting. Go have fun. And every quarter, it would take me five days to pull everything together. And then I knew it was going to be another two weeks of answering questions once the presentations happened at the executive level because they were going to spot things. So I'd be preparing as that was happening, but I didn't ever have time to really give people a heads up like I should have. So before you get upset with your ops person about them not giving you a big heads up, look at the resources you've given them and whether or not they're equipped to do that for you. End of uh, rant. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, I, I think I I talk about this a lot in a lot of a lot of forms. Honestly, of like a little bit of kind of marketing or data rehab. And I think a lot of what I've seen is just practices that have been widely distributed. Right, whether it was this motion of growth hacking or getting one of something to get ten output of something. Right, there's never it's really hard to understand the externality of that, right? Even if you can do that, right? Like I'll, I'll talk in like my old advertising page. Even if you can get a cost per click or cost per lead, if you think about it from that mindset, very low, aggressively low based on your budget. Mm -hmm. I always ask the question, like, what does it actually do for your business? Has, have they accelerated to your sales team faster? Are they showing more buying intent? Mm -hmm. Are they closing at larger rates for you? What does it actually mean? Or is it just people who honestly are a cost center twice for you, wants to acquire them through an, a generally semi-expensive channel, depending on where you go, like Facebook, Google, or LinkedIn. And then it sits in, let's say, a marketing automation platform or a CRM, generally costs per lead. And yes, it's fractional when we're talking about you know 10 or 20, but if you're doing this at scale, creating junk into your system, you're paying for it twice. It doesn't matter how low the CPL is. Like, why and what are you optimizing for, really? Exactly. And that's why it's, it's so hard to wrap your heads around that. Or a lot of teams wrap, wrapping their heads around that because some of those teams are... I've seen teams that are fully built out on the advertising front where they've never proved out does advertising work. 
I come back to, I'm a big movie buff, I come back to Jurassic Park. Just because we could, doesn't mean that we should. We never asked me, stop yes. asking myself, should. Malcolm. <laughs> yes, I think it is so relevant today. <laughs> really, that does pop into my head quite regularly. Uh, so before we close out, you mentioned something really insightful. You mentioned that loud voices can be a source of contention or misinformation. What do you think causes those loud voices? Yeah, I mean, I think about loud voices a lot from the sales perspective, right? That's where mm-hmm. you see a lot of pain naturally go with specifically in B2B, the buying process and how we naturally sell, right? There is those folks that are traditionally hand raisers that want to be sold to in some capacity, arguably, or at least more so than other folks. And then there's some folks that are generally trying to just check out content or educate themselves at varying stages of awareness or buying intent, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And so I have a lot of empathy for those types of folks because in that type of situation, if you don't have a loud voice, the business will be very quick to cut you, right? From a department, whether it be an SDR, BDR type of board, or even up to an entire like regional segment, right? It might be like, our West Coast or APAC team, right? I'm using kind of the sales and go-to-market terminology, but there's empathy and sympathy across all teams that have this notion of when something is broken, who's responsible for fixing it, right? It's this sense of ownership. And I think back to my manufacturing days of the Toyota production line, where you had somebody on the floor, they were encouraged to basically pull a stop sign on this giant assembly line when something was wrong so that they could immediately fix it, right? And so I always say that there's always a nugget of truth there with a loud voice. Mm-hmm. And what we, we have to use the lens of having empathy and having a listening ear of understanding where that's coming from, but also put it into the context of, is this a global problem or is it an isolated problem to someone who's upset, mm-hmm. right? And that's, those are the two levels. I think it originates from a place of, you want to do good. You're told that unless you have a loud voice, the blame, unfortunately, is going to be put onto yourself. Specifically back to the sales example, if you're not hitting your quota, guess what? It's going to be very quick that the business is going to cut part or all the sales department and try to rehire and retrain a new department without changing anything else in the process. Mm-hmm. And so when you have that loud voice, we need to understand of, a, where it's coming from. Two, how applicable is it across the business? Is this something that, from let's say a go-to-market process standpoint, is a really friction for either the buying or the kind of the selling aspects of the business? So it could be that, you know, why is it that it takes five meetings or five email exchanges back and forth for your team to get one meeting with somebody looking to do a demo of your product, mm-hmm. right? And we always have to ask ourselves, how applicable, how, how much of it is the truth? And I think in every loud voice, there's always some truth in it. Mm-hmm. We have to discern of like, what is the impact to a business? And then three, I'll say the last kind of piece of it is that it's a DNA of culture of, you know, it's my job kind of, or your job, or my smarts versus your smarts, right? Like my perspective versus your perspective. And I don't think it has to be this us versus them type of mentality. I think it should be us together against the problem. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, I think it's much better to say, like, I have a loud voice. Like, I personally, in all my experiences as an operations person, as I've gone through my career, I've had to have a loud voice. Yep. I had to say that this doesn't work. This doesn't make sense. 
we need to be investing in this data project when we're not, because that's where we identify blind spots. And yes, I could understand how the uneducated eye, to the uneducated eye, it sounds like I'm just complaining a lot about a lot of things. But there's usually a grain of truth there, and then we have to kind of understand what to do with that information. So I think it's it comes down to listening intently and then putting it into context of the business of if we make this change, what is the impact to let's say even your peers or your ability to close revenue from a sales perspective again? So it might be to say that, let's say, as an example, a new privacy law just came out. So a bunch of European and kind of APAC regions are now decreased and let's say the volume that you send of incoming demand. Okay, well, you, you can acknowledge that you can try to create new process or new demand to supplement that demand that you have to restrict. Okay, that's a valid use case, but that's not necessarily applicable to your West Coast to East Coast team where they might be metaphorically sitting on like fat cats. Yeah. Right. And so that's where you always have to take those kind of the grain of sand, but also to see is it part is it part of like a bigger farm, is it part of a bigger story? Mm-hmm. And how can we how can we lead with like a I go back to kind of the improv methodology of yes and mm-hmm. right? Because in, in the off space we say no so often. We say no, we can't do that, or no, I don't have the resources to do that. And I'm not saying we should always say yes to everything, right? It gets to no, this notion of burnout. But what I am saying is that for those situations where there is that loud voice, we do need to see like a way to solve the problem. Problem solving might be training. It might be user error. It might be the fact that somebody sees one outlier and they're going to make a very big kerfuffle about this. Mm-hmm. As opposed to I'm seeing you know, the same types of observable patterns day in and day out and nobody is fixing this. Well, then guess what? They're going to leave and go to another company that will fix it. Yeah. Now it reminds me of the dynamics that we have to fight. The example that always pops in my head is marketing says sales isn't following up on leads and marketing or sales says the leads are garbage and they're usually both right. (laughs) So yes, wise words. So Sasha, thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. Where can people find you online to network? Yeah, best place to reach me at is just uh, Sasha Smallow. It's my first and last name put together on LinkedIn. We'd love to connect with anybody in the space. Wonderful. And for those of you listening, if you enjoy this podcast, please tell two friends, like, subscribe, comment. And for those of you looking for more great content like this, check out calibermind.com. <laughs>